following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. So we're in the Gospel of John and we've worked our way through most of this Gospel now. For It's taken us about six months Uh, We've just got two messages to go, today and next week, and we're right at the end of the Gospel of John now. Uh, We've worked through the life of Jesus, uh, the death of Jesus, His resurrection, and now we're looking at this final stage of Jesus' earthly existence before He ascends to heaven, where He's in His resurrected body and appearing to His disciples. And last week we looked at Thomas, and uh, it, it turns out I think there's quite a few doubting Thomases among us which is good, and I'm one of them, and we were able to say, hey, this is okay, and we don't need to be scared of doubt. We don't need to be afraid of doubt, but we can see it as part of our faith and integrate doubt into our faith rather than seeing it as something that threatens our faith and threatens to throw us off course as Christians. So I encourage you to listen to that message uh, if you weren't here last week. So this morning, we come to the story of the miracle of, of the great big catch of fish. And perhaps as we start out this morning, let's pray, shall we? We'll commit this time to the Lord. Father, we want to bring ourselves under your word this morning. We thank you for the scriptures. and We thank you for this gospel of John in particular as we've traveled through it, Lord. Thank you for your servant, John, that you empowered him to write all these things down, that you inspired him to write this biography of Jesus. We thank you for what we can learn about you, Jesus, through these pages. Father, as we look at this particular story this morning, open our eyes, open our ears, enlarge our hearts. Help us to receive what you want to say to us, to be transformed by it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, in some ways, the story in John 21 of the catch of fish. It seems a little bit disconnected from what's come before. Uh, We've just had the resurrection of Jesus, this great triumphant resurrection, and he's appeared now to his disciples over a couple of successive weeks, and he's breathed his spirit upon them, and he said, as the Father has sent me, now I'm sending you. He's given them this kind of commission to go into the world as apostles. And really the next thing that we expect to see in the gospel is the disciples going out and boldly proclaiming the reality of the resurrection. What we expect is for them now to be empowered witnesses and to be talking about Jesus and telling people that he's risen from the dead and evangelizing and starting church communities and getting this whole movement off the ground. That's, that's their role. That's their job. But what we find in John 21 is exactly the opposite. These guys leave Jerusalem and they go home. They just go back up north to Galilee, the sleepy little part of the country where they live, where their homes are and their families, these tiny little fishing villages scattered around the lake, and they just they go back home. And then Peter says, I'm going out to fish. In other words, he's going back to work. That's not just recreational for Peter. He's saying, I'm going back to my work, to my old job. I'm going fishing. So you don't really get the sense of momentum. And Peter gets a bit criticized for this by some commentators. Didn't he realize he was an apostle? Didn't he know he's, he's supposed to start churches now? Didn't he realize he's supposed to be the first pope? You know, that's, that's a bit tongue-in-cheek. But, you know, didn't Peter get the sense of, 
of his calling. But he just says, well, I'm, I'm just going to fish. And so he takes six other disciples with him, and they go out fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And they fish through the night. And this was common to fish through the night, nighttime fishing. Apparently it still is on the Sea of Galilee that there are certain types of fish, I understand, that you can see a little bit more clearly at night than you can see during the day. So people would often fish through the night. And they fish all night and catch nothing. And that's a problem for them. That's not just a bad fishing story. That's a problem economically for them because this was a very subsistence economy. And no fish at night means no fish to sell at the marketplace in the morning, which means no income that day for them. And that's a problem for them and for their families. This was a bad working day for Peter. But as they're coming into shore here, about 90 meters from shore, they see this, this person, this figure on the shore, on the beach. And they don't know who it is at this stage. That We know it's Jesus. They don't know that. They just see this guy there. And he calls out to them, haven't you caught any fish? That's probably the last thing you want to hear, isn't it? If you've, if you've had a whole night fishing, you've caught nothing, and then some random guy on the beach just yells out, hey, haven't you caught any fish? And they say, no. And then he carries on, and Jesus says, well, why don't you let down your nets on the other side of the boat? You know, by this time, you'd be tempted to let out a few expletives, wouldn't you? At this guy. Now he's giving fishing advice. This guy's had a, no a good night's sleep, and he's just showing up on the beach, and now he's handing out advice to these fishermen. But what's amazing is they listen to him. They listen to Jesus. You know, that's the question I had as I read this text. Why, why do they listen to him? They didn't know it was Jesus. There's some stranger on the beach who's kind of being a bit annoying and tells them now to put their nets on the other side of the boat. Why do they bother listening to him? Why don't they just write him off? So I read a bit more about this, and it turns out that what Jesus is doing here is actually quite a common fishing practice that often people who would fish on Galilee, they'd fish in pairs. And one guy would stand on the shore, and if possible, on a, on a raised bank back from the shore and kind of look down over the lake. And the other guy would wade out into the lake or be in a boat, and apparently from shore, from a raised altitude, you could see certain shoals of fish in clear water a little bit more easily than you could if you were out in the water. And so the guy on the shore would just say, move the net a little bit to the left, move it a bit to the right, and he would be guiding the fishermen as to where the best catch was going to be. So this was quite common. What Jesus is doing, in some sense, this is a miracle, but in another sense, Jesus is just being a really good fishing guide for his mates. He, he's just showing them. He's pointing out where the fish are. And, and that's probably why they listen, because this kind of thing happened all the time. So they put down their nets on, on the side Jesus directs them to, and they get this huge catch of fish, 153 fish. Someone had the gift of administration, decided to count them all. 153 fish. So many that they couldn't even pull the nets into the boat. <clears throat> and then at that point, apparently John's the first one to click on to what's going on here. And John says, it's the Lord. And as soon as Peter hears that, he just dives off the side of the boat. And he starts swimming towards the shore. The whole thing gets a little bit comical at this point. It's like, it reminds me of that scene in Forrest Gump where Forrest is bringing the shrimp fishing boat in. You know the one? And then he sees Lieutenant Dan on the pier. And as soon as he sees Lieutenant Dan, he's like, Lieutenant Dan! And he just jumps off the boat. He just leaves it to crash into the pier. And he swims towards Lieutenant Dan. That's exactly what's happening here with Peter. 
He just sees Jesus, and as soon as he realizes it's Jesus, he doesn't care about the fish anymore. He just leaves these other six guys. They can't even pull in the net, but Peter doesn't care about that. He just dives into the water and swims towards Jesus. All he wants is to be with Jesus. He's so excited. And finally, they all get back to shore. The others have had to tow the net. Couldn't get it into the boat. Had to tow the net. Peter's already there, soaking wet. And they come to Jesus here, and Jesus has got a fire burning, and he's got some fish cooking And they share this breakfast on the beach with Jesus. It's a great story, and it's a a great scene. And one of the things, this isn't the main point, but one of the things I love about the story is it just shows such a human Jesus, doesn't it? I love that, that Jesus is raised from the dead, victorious, conquering Savior, and yet here he is having breakfast on the beach with his mates. It's just great. Very earthy Jesus. This is who he is. Christ, the risen Lord, breakfast on the beach. It's good stuff. Now, Excuse me. The question is, what do we do with this story? Uh, It's interesting you read the commentaries and people go in all kinds of directions with this story and do some weird things with it. And in particular, people love to go to town on this number, the 153 fish. What could that mean? It's like there's something about Christians when they see numbers in the Bible. It's like it brings out all the crazy Especially in Revelation, but even here, man, some people have come up with, you just Google it when you get home, 153 fish, you will see some crazy stuff, some crazy theories. Um, People go, I'm not even going to go into it, into all kinds of things about what the 153 can mean and and use some pretty bizarre mathematics. I'm not sure it really means anything other than that there were a whole lot of fish. Um, But if you've got a theory on that, that's fine, we can pray about that afterwards. but, but what do we do with this story? What is, what is it teaching us? Let me make a couple of observations about the story as a whole that will give us a framework for thinking about this. First of all, this is the only miracle that's recorded in any of the Gospels after Jesus rises from the dead. That's quite significant. None of the other Gospels have any miracles after the resurrection. John only has this one. So part of what John, I think, is showing us here is here is what the resurrection looks like now when it's starting to be outworked. Here is what difference the resurrection of Jesus makes to life on the other side of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the other thing that's significant here is that this story happens at work. That's great, isn't it? This is not a church story. This is not a sacred place or a spiritual occasion. This is work. Peter is at work. This is his workplace. And the power of the risen Jesus encounters him right there in his work. This is a work story. It's possibly the best work story anyone's ever had. It's great of Jesus becoming present in the workplace. And, and when you put those two things together, I think there's a really interesting picture that emerges, that here is the resurrection of Jesus being outworked in our workplace now. Here is God's new creation bursting into this area of our life our working life, our vocation. It's like Jesus has taken the most ordinary sphere of existence, the most normal, the most, quote, secular sphere of our human existence, and he said, the resurrection applies to this. The resurrection matters here. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, he's Lord of all, he's Lord over everything, and that means he's Lord over your workplace. He's Lord over work. And I think, among other things, what this story is showing is that there is no square inch of creation that Jesus' power doesn't touch. There's no square inch of our lives that the resurrection doesn't affect 
and influence and where God doesn't want to make his power known. I think this is about God's resurrection power, the new creation, becoming applied to our ordinary working lives, just as it was for Peter. I think a lot of Christians really struggle to know how to apply their faith to their workplace. Maybe you're in that category. There seems to be a huge chasm between what we do here on Sunday, worshiping, learning from Scripture, taking the Lord's Supper, and then you work into your, walk into your workplace tomorrow. And by workplace, <clears throat> you, know, you, you make the applications. This may be your retirement life or your student life or your unemployed life or your parenting life, whatever it is that occupies your time, whatever the work is that you're engaged in. I think we struggle to know, how does my faith relate to this? How does my faith apply to this? We tend to have a disconnection, don't we? And we see our work as something that's kind of irrelevant spiritually or insignificant spiritually. And I think that forces us back on the question of who is this God that we actually believe in? And I think that's what this passage is pointing at. Who is this Jesus? Who is this God who we claim to follow? Is he a God only of church services? Is he a God only of the, quote, spiritual things? Or is he a God over everything, including our working lives? If God is, if Jesus is Lord of all, then he is Lord of your work. God is interested in your work and he wants to be involved in your working life. He wants to bring the new creation into the very places and spaces where we spend most of our time in our work. So, let me first give you one way of applying this badly, and then we'll look at a way of applying it better. It's tempting to go down the road of saying, well, you look at the story of these fishermen, and they involve Jesus in their work, and look what happens. They have this huge, miraculous catch of fish. It's tempting to go down the road of saying, when we involve Jesus in our work, we're going to experience success in our businesses. We're going to experience flourishing in our working lives. We're going to have positive relationships with our colleagues, employers, employees. And if we don't involve Jesus, we're going to experience failure. And at one level, that's what happens to the disciples, isn't it? Without Jesus, they fail. With Jesus, they succeed. But I don't need to convince you that that doesn't work, right? The just basic success-failure paradigm. There's plenty of Christians who honor God in their workplace, who are sincere followers of Jesus, who seek to be faithful, who try to integrate their faith with what they're doing, and their businesses fail. And they get made redundant. And they experience real distress at work. Or they work in jobs that are absolute drudgery, and yet they're trying to be faithful. And there are countless examples of people who don't give God a second thought, but they make truckloads of money, and they have huge success. At work, They don't bring Jesus into their workplace at all, but they're extremely successful. So if we just simply operate with the success-failure kind of paradigm, we're really going to miss what's going on here. It doesn't work, and it's not faithful to this passage. I think there's something much deeper that's at work here. What Jesus is wanting to bring into your workplace is not success. It's new creation. It's new life. It's the power of his resurrection. It's really his own presence. That's what he's doing here with his disciples, is Jesus is showing up at work. And the very experience of him showing up changes things. This starts, I think, by acknowledging this basic affirmation that your work matters to God. 
And I, I still don't think we're there on that, that our work matters to God. I think most Christians would go as far as saying, my workplace matters to God. But are we prepared to believe that the very substance of our work, what you're going to be doing with your time tomorrow, that that matters, that it's valuable to God? Let me read you this quote by a woman called Amy Sherman. She wrote a book called Kingdom Calling. She says this, God cares about lawyers, but he cares about law. He cares about engineers, but he cares about engineering. He cares about artists, but he cares about art. The work itself really matters. Do you believe that? That's a hard thing, isn't it? Because again, it goes back to the question, well, who is God? Does he really care about this stuff? Isn't he only the God of Bible study and prayer and devotions and communion wafers and things? You know, Is that God? <clears throat> or is this a huge God? that we're talking about, who cares about everything and cares about the intricate things and cares about our work. God cares about urban planning. God cares about plastics manufacturing. God cares about sales. He cares about graphic design. He cares about architecture. He cares a lot about coffee roasting. He cares. He cares about nursing. He cares about midwifery. He cares about radiology. He cares about, I'm just trying to name some of the vocations as I'm looking at you in the room. He cares about accountancy. He cares about business consulting. He cares about these things. Do you, do you honestly believe that? Don't just nod your heads. Do you really, you know, I think this is so important. I think at a deep level, this is what this passage is teaching us. God cares. Jesus wouldn't have shown up at Peter's workplace if he didn't care about Peter's work. Our work, the work itself, really matters to God. And that's because we were created to work. Really. We were created to work. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. The very first commission that human beings are given in Scripture is to work. To work the garden. Take care of it, said God. That's what we're called to do. It's what we're commissioned to do, to work. And the reason we're called to work is because God is a worker. God himself is a worker. He worked for six days creating the earth, the cosmos. He's continually working to uphold and sustain creation. And what happens when you work and work well is you are imaging God. You're expressing what it means to be human, and it's part of expressing the image of God. I think that should breathe huge validation into your ordinary working life, that when you work well and you work with diligence, you're expressing the image of God. You don't just glorify God in your workplace by having Christian music on in the background. That's good. That's fine. But you don't just glorify God in your workplace by having a Christian bumper sticker on your work vehicle. There's other ways. The work itself is valuable. When you work well, you are being truly human. You're expressing and imaging the God who works and calls us to work. Work's a good thing. It's a God thing. And it's glorifying to Him. right? It doesn't mean any kind of work is good, right? You can't say, well, I work in organized crime. I'm going to work to the glory of God, you know? When I put a hit on someone, I'm expressing the image of God. It doesn't work like that. You, get, you actually have to look at your work. You do have to evaluate the nature of your work. And it may be that it's not in alignment with who God is and His intended 
work for creation. But don't, don't assume that unless you are a pastor or a missionary or a church planter, that you are not doing good work. Those vocations are sacred, but so are the vocations of plumbing, and building, architecture, engineering, law, whatever. Your work is to the glory of God, but you need to take a look at it and ensure that it is working in sync with God's intentions for humanity. Is, is your work in some way contributing to the common good? Is your work in some way contributing to human flourishing and thriving towards a healthy and a whole society and economy? If it's not, you may need to ask some questions. But is your work moving with the grain of God? Is your work moving with the grain of God's intentions for humanity when he first created human beings to thrive in every direction? Is your work, directly or indirectly, contributing to the common good? If it is, your work is glorifying to God. And you need to see your vocation as an offering to God. And when you show up to work, realize that this is a calling. This is a sacred calling and your workplace is a sacred space. I think when we get our heads around this idea that our work really matters to God and that work itself is glorifying to God, then we will have the experience of these disciples where we'll start to recognize Jesus in our work more than we do. When you see that your work itself is God-given, you'll start to see Jesus show up at your workplace in ways maybe you never expected him to, in some of the most secular conversations and projects and so on. You might just come to recognize Christ because you're affirming the fact that your work matters to him. <clears throat> and as much as when we work, we're affirming our creation mandate, we're also at work invited to bring about tastes of new creation right there in our workplace. This is, I think, what this passage is pointing to, that our work is an opportunity to bring about tastes and glimpses of God's new creation in all kinds of ways. Because the work that you can do, the work itself, can be good, it can be valuable, but we can still work in ways that don't honor God through the way that we relate to people, through the way we conduct ourselves at work, through our work ethic, and so on. We need to ask ourselves, am I working in such a way as to bring about God's new creation? Are there opportunities to extend some faith, some hope, some love to people within the context of your workplace? I know a guy who had to let a secretary go in his workplace, but he, he really worked with her to try and extend out the amount of time that she could still have to outwork her contract longer than he was required to contractually, but to try and take an interest in her welfare, try and help her get placed in a job, to try and look at the person and not just the end of the contract. I heard of an employee who was made redundant and in the conversation with her employer, she took the opportunity to ask him how he was going. She knew this was a tough time for him and she asked him, how are you doing personally with all this? this these must be difficult conversations to have. I have a friend who's got a colleague at work who's going through some difficult times personally and, and my friend said he, he plans to get alongside this guy just personally, try and encourage him, try and support him outside of work, just, just be there for this guy because the difficulties he's going through personally are affecting his working life. There's a woman in our church who's being an advocate for someone else in their workplace, another woman in this church as a support, as an advocate. These examples are ways of bringing new creation about in the context of our workplace, simply by extending faith and love and hope to other people, 
in really, really ordinary conversations, really ordinary ways. It doesn't have to be anything spectacular. But when you do these things, you're not just being a good person. You're not just being a good Christian. It's not just morality, but you're bringing about God's new creation at work. You're working with God and you're participating in your workplace in bringing about God's new creation. And that's a great opportunity. And it breathes, I think, new meaning and life into the stuff that consumes most of our time. I had to wrestle with these things when I was uh, working in public relations before working here in the church. And, you know, some people would say that's the one irredeemable industry, right? Public relations. How can you possibly be a spin doctor for Jesus? And, and these are the kinds of questions that I had to try and figure out, you know, not just in my vocation as a whole, but in specific projects and with specific clients and things that came up and asking these kinds of questions. Is this the kind of thing that is going to be glorifying to God? Can I outwork my faith here? Uh, is this something that can work with the grain of God? And ultimately, I decided, yes, it was. You might disagree, but I felt like, yeah, the, communi the communications industry can be redeemed. This can be a way of working and working well and glorifying God in my work. And then trying to look for opportunities, little opportunities, everyday opportunities to be an encouragement. And I found so much of the time as Christians, the best thing we can do is to try and bring some humanness into our workplace. Because so often, I don't know whether it's particularly office-type jobs, but People are treating each other in such a transactional way. And it's just the job, and it's, it's the business, the project, the contract. And it's not personal. And just simply by taking an interest in the lives of other people, asking some questions, drawing out their stories, treating them with dignity, treating them with compassion, looking for the people at your work who are marginalized, maybe the lower down positions, who do tend to get steamrolled and trampled over by other people, who do tend to be on the receiving end of office politics and gossip and negative talk. Find those people and just see if you can encourage them. Just see if you can speak some affirmation into their life. Get alongside them. These are ways of bringing humanity into what is often a very inhumane kind of environment. And when we do that, we're bringing about new creation in our workplace. I love this scene on the beach where Jesus <clears throat> has breakfast with his mates. And when they arrive there, <clears throat> you notice Jesus has already got this fire going. And he's already got some fish cooking. Where'd Jesus get his fish from? Maybe he's already been fishing. Maybe Jesus has already been ahead of you in your workplace. Somehow Jesus has already got some fish, and he cooks up these fish. And I love what he says in verse 10 to Peter, to all the disciples. He says, bring some of the fish you've just caught. And so Simon Peter suddenly is possessed by this Herculean strength, and he goes back and drags single-handedly this fishing net that six people a second ago couldn't lift. And now Peter just grabs the whole thing, brings it in. He's so excited. He just dumps these fish down and they start cooking these fish together. And there's this beautiful picture at the end of the story of Peter and Jesus sharing together in the fruit of their labor, sharing together in their work and what they've accomplished together. That's a, that's, I don't want to push the symbolism too far, but that's a great picture to keep in mind, isn't it? That Can you hear Jesus saying the same thing to you? You bring some of what you've caught. You bring what you've accomplished. Bring your work and not just the good stuff. Some of you I know this year have really battled at work. You've really struggled. There have been really difficult working relationships that you've had to, to go through. Huge demands that are overwhelming at times in your business life. And you know, Jesus is saying to you, you bring that to me. Don't think I'm not interested in that. 
Don't think that's off limits to God, that he doesn't care about that. Jesus is saying, you bring what, what you do. You bring the stuff that's going on. You bring your colleagues. Bring these difficulties. Bring these heartaches that you're going through at work, the injustices you're experiencing at work. Jesus is saying, you bring that. I'm interested. I care. I want to be involved. I want to be immersed in this. I want you to see that I'm already in your workplace, and I want to become even more present to you in your job. Jesus is inviting you to bring all of that to him. And he's inviting you to bring the good stuff and just the normal stuff, the getting through the day stuff. He's inviting you to bring your client list to him, to bring your business plan to him. You ever done that? Brought a business plan to God? Consulted with him about any of it? I mean, this is just outside, isn't it, of our frame of thinking so often. Bring your patience to God, praying for these people, maybe not even out loud, but just silently in your mind. Are you willing to bring what you do to Jesus? That's the invitation you bring. Some of what you've done. You bring what you achieve. You bring what you've accomplished. You bring the struggles at work. You bring the challenges. You bring the loneliness of your vocation. Bring it all. Jesus wants to share in that with us. He wants to be with us in that. And he wants to show us the ways in which we can, with Christ, bring new creation out of that. Both through the work that we do and through the people that we are in our workplace. Even when it's really, really hard at work. Paul wrote in the book of Colossians, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters. Such a good reminder. I think that's what this story is all about. That when we can understand our work, whether it's a good or bad experience right now, as being God-given, when we see our work as part of our created calling, when we see our vocation as an expression of the image of God, and when we work in Jesus' name and to his glory, then we work as to the Lord and not just to our superiors, to our employers, or to our board. We work toward the Lord. We orientate ourselves towards him, and then we can know the very act of working and working well and working with diligence is deeply honoring to him. And we trust that just as Jesus guided his fishing friends in terms of where they put down the nets, Jesus will guide us too. As we negotiate difficult decisions and situations, as we deal with the moral ambiguities at work and the ethical grayness that I know pervades so many of your workplaces, Jesus will guide us by his spirit as we listen, as we follow, as we obey, as we work well and work diligently. He will enable us in his strength to bring about tastes and glimpses of new creation right there in the middle of our work. May we work and work well to the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, I just feel led in this moment to lift up to you right now, particularly those people who are really struggling in their workplace. I know others are doing fine, but Jesus, there are those here this morning with a heavy heart and it's just hard at work. And Jesus, you know that when it's hard in our workplace, life is hard. And Father, I lift them up to you this morning. I pray that you'd visit them with your peace and your love and your comfort and your strength. Lord, for those who are really struggling with tough relationships at work, for those who are just worn down and exhausted and utterly depleted by their work. Jesus, for those who feel at work like they're a square peg in a round hole and they don't fit and it's not working, but they don't know what to do. Lord, for those who are just overwhelmed by the demands of their workplace, for those who experience work as drudgery and just find it tedious, 
Lord Jesus, we bring all of that to you. And we bring all the positive too, all the positive stories of our working lives. We bring it all to you, Jesus. Thank you that you invite us to do that. We lay it all down this morning at the foot of the cross. Lord, we want to acknowledge Jesus, your Lord over everything, including our work. And we want to surrender it all to you. Jesus, we know there's no easy answers to these things. There's no quick fixes. But Jesus, more than anything, we want you to be involved. We want you to be present. We want to be like these disciples and learn to recognize you in our workplace, in the struggles, in the pain, as well as in the joy. Help us to see you, Jesus. Help us to know you've already gone ahead of us into tomorrow. You've already gone ahead of us into our boardrooms and our lunchrooms and our staff rooms and on site and into the hospitals and the lecture rooms. Father, you're already there. You're already there waiting for us tomorrow. So Jesus, we want to work with you and we pray for your strength. We pray for your presence. We pray for your enabling power to be your people in our work. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.